0: Hello and welcome to India Speak, a podcast by the Center for Policy Research. This is the third episode in a series of podcasts called The Road to COP27. The first podcast featured Harold Winkler from South Africa, the second Salimul Haq from Bangladesh, and today we have with us Professor Rachel Kite, from the Fletcher School uh, of uh, Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Uh, Thank you so much for taking time uh, to join us today, Rachel, in this conversation in the build-up to COP27.
1: It's wonderful to be here. Thank you.
0: Let me introduce listeners uh, to to Rachel, uh, who is really somebody with a deep history uh, of engagement in the climate debate, uh, as well as with a very distinguished track record. Uh, So as I said, Rachel is currently the Dean of the Fletcher School uh, of uh, Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. Uh, And in the past, she served as Special Representative uh, of the UN Secretary General, uh, as well as Chief Executive Officer of something called Sustainable Energy for All, a very important body that is really focused on trying to get energy access uh, for all peoples around the world. She also has a background uh, at the World Bank, where she was Vice President and Special Envoy for Climate Change, uh, and also played an important role at the International Finance Corporation, responsible for ESG risk and business advisory services. So Rachel, um, like a couple of the other speakers we've had on this series, combines an academic background with deep policy engagement uh, and has been a long and distinguished voice on a lot of climate issues, so is a wonderful person uh, to have as part of the series leading up to COP27. So thank you again, Rachel, for for joining us. Um, I thought we might kick off, actually, by asking you to take us through the political context for COP27. This is an interesting COP uh, to be held in Egypt. It comes against the backdrop of a lot of high-profile climate impacts this year. It also comes uh, at a time when developing countries, particularly African nations, are making a strong case that their ability to access fossil fuels Shouldn't be restricted. That they should. That if there are scarce fossil fuels uh, to be used because of climate change, maybe poorer countries should have first dibs at them. In a sense, we see uh, Europe roiled by energy security issues in, in the in the wake of this uh, Russia Ukraine war that's going on. So there's a lot of ferment, and in a sense, uh, it's perhaps sets a different sort of stage. For this COP as compared to past COPs, well, would you agree with that? And, and how do you see this playing out?
1: Yeah, I think that's a very, I think that's a very apt question. I, I think that um, the science only gets more, you know, alarming uh, every year, and this year is no different. This year, I think everybody everywhere is feeling the impacts of climate change, so that starts to. Um, I think change the political calculus it, it changes the, the psyche uh, the sort of the general public's view of climate change globally as well uh, and then we're coming off the back of you know uh, a, a number of very difficult years um, economically so we were we were already seeing the beginning of inflationary pressure we were seeing a, a deeply divided world with the IMF talking about the corrosive effect of inequality and 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 um, Uh, before the pandemic, then we had the pandemic, which uh, obviously brought huge public health uh, challenges around the world, but brought with it enormous economic dislocation, commodity price rises, etc. And then we've had on the back of that, which most uh, countries in the global south have not, you know, not got through, right, they're still enmeshed in that. And then we we now have a, a war on European soil. We have this great power rivalry which is really testing the limits of the multilateralism um, that we um, have been used to for the last 70 odd years and so if we have a crisis of the likes of uh, climate you know a sort of big market failure global public goods crisis existential threat whatever you want to think of it or frame it as then we need more cooperation we need the harnessing of the way in which we manage our economies. Behind the uh, behind the science, all of that is difficult to do both domestically and in terms of cooperation at this particular point point of time. And then we're having it in Egypt, so it's an Africa COP. So Africa, the African unanswered questions on loss and damage, the unanswered questions on climate finance, the unanswered questions on availability of the right priced capital or access to trading systems, their fears about being excluded. Um, all come to the fore. And it's in Egypt. And Egypt's got some complicated neighborhood relationships. Uh, it's relationship with Ethiopia, it's relationship with the rest of Africa, it's relationship with the UAE, the next hosts with Turkey, etc. cetera. There's a complicated place in a complicated agenda at a complicated time.
0: Well, I, I think, you know, I, I thought I'd try to paint a, a, a picture of complexity and you took it sort of several levels uh, beyond that, <laughs> but I think quite appropriately so. So, so and, and, and important brought in the role of China and and whether the the sort of the the, the world order that we become used to is 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 uh, is poised on on, on the brink of, of of change. You, I think, quite appropriately said it raises a lot of unanswered questions. So, so let me ask this: To what extent is this mechanism of COPs, these annual meetings at the Conference of Parties, really the place increasingly? to address these questions, or do these questions need to be addressed somewhere else with the details kind of ironed out uh, at COPS? And what are those other fora? Um, uh, is the G20, and of course in India the G20 is being watched very closely because we are the next next chair. Um, where is the place to have these uh, conversations?
1: Well, I think that's a great question. I think it's a both and answer, right? So we need a place where we manage the mechanics of working together on climate change. And that's the COP. And mm-hmm. it's interesting that however much we decry it, because you know, we've got climate negotiations who don't understand how you know private finance works or, or, or whatever, every other issue is like, oh, I wish we had a COP that works like the climate cop, so the biodiversity or mm-hmm. other global public goods issues because it's this it's a thermostat and it's um it's uh it's an annual uh health check it is uh it is the spring cleaning that you need to do every year to make sure that you've got everything and you're in track and everybody knows what they're supposed to do so i think it's a very important uh, uh yearly uh pulse with with a lot of other intersessional meetings and stuff going on i would like it to go a bit faster and i think simon uh, still the new uh, executive secretary is sort of really looking at you know what are the most important things and how does he move forward and I think it has a fundamental challenge which is how do you work with non-state actors this is going to be a big issue at this COP and it's going to be a recurring issue and something for a longer discussion I think you know lost. but then it, climate is everything and everything is climate and so now you see you know, an extraordinary amount of attention really being paid to climate finally at the recent annual meetings of the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, I've just been listening to the governors of the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank. Um, you know, the, the two big topics are how to become cyclical and how to become cyclical in a climate crisis. Mm. So all of the multilateral financial system is now focused on this because of the macroprudential risk issues. We now see it coming up in um, in the... In the trade discussions, I think uh, Ngozi Riala, the, the Director General of the WTO, is looking very hard at how to bridge the sustainability and trade discussions. It's something that the world has punted on on a, on a regular basis for the last 30 years. Um, and we see it creeping into, obviously, the whole phalanx of issues that the UN deals with at, in terms of peace and security, as well as development, as well as humanitarian affairs. And then, of course, we don't have a functioning security council, but if we did, this would be a much more recurring theme there as well. So yes, climate is now discussed in all of those places. And then we come together once a year in terms of COP in a, a little bit of a jamboree, but also a very serious diplomatic meeting. And we need we need that because it is that is our pacemaker. It is our thermostat. It is what keeps us uh, working together so that we understand where we are. Of course, next year, we will have a formal stop taking to see where we are, but we, we do need to uh, marry the, the excitement of what's going on in some of the private markets, the dismay about what's going on in some of the uh, public finances in many countries with the possibility of what's happening technologically with also then the politics of how difficult some of this is.
0: Yeah, i think that's uh, that, that that's really the linkages as you say are are, are really are really far flung and um i, I you know I, I really like the idea of the the cops as an annual health check and i have to say i sort of feel as exhausted after coming out of one of these cops yeah. it's, it's, it's it's actually personally not a bad metaphor for how one feels coming out of these things um sort of uh sort of you know rung dry um yeah you, you said you said you said climate is is everything and everything is climate and i think and i think that's that's absolutely right. Um, and obviously, there's a set of things to unpack from that, uh, the, the sort of agenda items uh, of the COP, uh, and we'll maybe go through some of those, finance, mm-hmm. and loss and damage, and so on. But before I do that, given your vantage point in the US, uh, the climate is everything phrase also made me think of recent political developments in the US. In other words, the somewhat surprise, in a good way, surprise, passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. And I think it's, it's uh, you know, the, the fact that the most progressive climate legislation in history in the U.S. is called the Inflation Reduction Act should teach us all something. Uh, and it speaks to this theme of sort of the expansiveness of how we talk about climate, the climate is everything theme. So just a, a couple of minutes on on what your take is on that and whether you think, what do you think that means for how the U.S. will approach This COP. So, maybe a couple of the significant actors, the US, and then also maybe touching on the Europeans as you know, Mm -hmm. whether they will continue their active role or will they be somewhat on the back foot given the the recent um, uh, energy security crisis, the fact that they've Mm -hmm. had to actually double down on, on fossil fuel subsidies to get their consumers through the winter and so on. So, maybe into a couple of these blocks before we get into some of these issues.
1: So the the climate is everything. Everything is climate. I I borrowed from uh, one of the brightest uh, and best uh, climate journalists uh, in the US at the moment, Justin Warland, in a long piece that he wrote for Time magazine earlier this year. Um, And so, yes, in in US politics, uh, climate is is everything as long as it's not called climate. the Inflation Reduction Act is important not only in the letter of the law, but in what it will what it, what it will inspire within the within the private uh, within the private sector and within private financial markets. I think so. Uh, in, in fact, I, I was joking with a friend of mine in the run up to COP27 that every meeting I go to. The, the number of uh, the, the number that is given to the amount of investment that the ira will inspire if not legislate just keeps going up and but you know by the time we get to sharma shape will be, will be in some extraordinary uh, stratospheric number but I, but i think that the the rudiment is true so it's and it, this is the bridge that that, I, that the biden administration i think hopes that they've achieved which is that if you if you walk around and you talk to my neighbors or you talk go to any community you know, people want reasonable health, uh, reasonable energy bills, which come from making their houses more ineffic- energy efficient. It comes from doubling down on renewable energy. There is people are frustrated with the quality of infrastructure in this country. It's decaying. Well, the new infrastructure, the new grids, the new smart grids, all of that, you know, leans into a, a renewable energy future. And people want um a car that they can afford to run. And increasingly that's an electric vehicle and they like the ideas of electric vehicles and they like traveling in electric vehicles. Um, And they'd like to use public transport, but it would have to be available and clean and the air quality would have to be good and all that. So people want all of this, right? Uh, And depending on how old they are, then they're prepared to engage about climate change as as a topic as well. But that's what people want, and I think that that's what the Biden administration has done with the IRA, and also with the Chips Act. Now, embedded in that is also something which is going to be very interesting for the next period, which is the degree of local content that is expected in this push to green, uh, and also the amount of sort of onshoring or friendshoring. And there are going to be some awkward and uh, difficult conversations amongst allies and trading partners um, uh, as we try to uh, take away the concentration of global supply chains from one point of origin, in particular in solar in in the the northwest of China. um, as As people try to wean themselves off that, as people try to have justice within supply chains, And people try to move towards a green agenda and the labor unions have a hold on the Biden administration. How much of that is going to be possible if by adding more and more local content, are you actually putting prices up? Um, you know, what, what is the And we've seen interesting negotiations with the Koreans, with the Mexicans, with the other trading partners of the U.S. about the local content implications of that. So I think we've, we still don't know how to do this, but the, the stimulation of a green um, growth strategy is huge. It allows Biden to go to Sharm shake. sheik It allows the Americans to turn up and say, well, look, we have got our own house in order now. Our 2030 target Is achievable. Lots of other things are good at, but it is otherwise. If they hadn't passed the IRA, they were going to have to come to Sharm El Sheikh and say we have no idea how to meet our 2030 target. Right, right. So I think it's not to be underestimated. Other important things like USXIM has to um, invest 650 million dollars of uh, climate positive. uh, exports by October 2023. Um, there's lots of, uh, you know, across the government. There's a lot that needs to be done, and uh, how to do it, I think, is the is is the struggle now. Um, so that's the US. I think the EU. Now the EU in the middle of this this hard handbrake turn away from Russian oil and gas, which will kick in again in the next few weeks as they uh, choke off even more of the supply. Um, has not wavered from its targets. It has just announced that it will not up its target this year, which honestly I think is understandable, but it won't won't dilute its target. And so again, here, there's two very important messages from what Europe has gone through this year. One is that renewable energy is the answer, and that those economies within the European Union that had more renewable energy in their mix and had gone further down the pathway of a transition have done better. And so, you know, this is the time to say, okay, maybe we should have got going earlier than we did. But it's also a recipe for others. And then the second thing is that managing energy demand is really important. And that works, too. So the IEA came out very early in March and sort of said, look, if you manage energy demand, you can manage 10, 15, maybe even 20 percent down. uh, And this will be very important to you in the winter when you don't have supply that's all coming true. And some of the European Union countries have actually got their energy demand down by 15 to 18 percent. So, again, um, yeah, we are in the middle of, a, of, of an energy supply crisis and we see you know, Makisal from Senegal and the Nigerians and others asking for you know, permission or public investment to help them exploit their gas. Uh, but the, the overriding message of the pivots has been that uh, renewable energy is the way out for security and resilience reasons, as well as the planet. Um, uh, Energy demand management is really important. Of course, Europe has been able to hoover up gas on the international markets, which has affected others. But we have to hold both of those truths at the same time.
0: So, So do you think that on the energy demand story that they're doing quite enough or they've Put enough of their chips on that side of the uh, uh, of the betting board, you know. Because my understanding is that you know, uh, even now the UK, and Germany is still looking at sort of multiple percentage points of GDP equivalent in in uh, uh, in subsidies to keep gas prices low uh, this winter.
1: So within the within the EU, I mean. So let's talk about within the EU. Some countries. uh, So the energy demand management is going, I think, quite well. Could go further. Will need to go further. Uh, obviously, Germany was highly exposed on the on the gas side to to Russia and its particular uh, journey in extending the ex- extending the nuclear plants. I mean, this is a delicate political balance. But I think that they are more or less uh, are on the right track. And could they go further? Yes. The UK is a de- Sorry, the UK has been, as you I'm sure are aware, you know, on some uh, fantastical, magical political bus journey for the last few months and did not um, jump on the energy demand management issue early and then has been distracted all over the summer uh, and uh, as the right wing uh, sort of takes hold of the Conservative Party has also um, had a sort of fairly incoherent message about uh, uh, exploiting more North Sea gas and then fracking and then not fracking it depends which Prime Minister we have and they only last for a few right. days at the moment as you right. know. So the UK is kind of the UK could do much, much more on energy demand. And then, frankly, Canada and the United States have really not uh, taken the um, energy demand management story, uh, I think, seriously enough. But, uh, you know, in in the US, there's a lot that could be done uh, to very easily manage. uh, But obviously, the the, the energy dynamics are slightly different. But if we're looking at it in terms of the developed world using less energy, then uh, there are parts of the coalition that has uh, put sanctions on Russia that could do much more to manage their energy demand.
0: Right. Well, just coming back to the, 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 the way in which you told the story about the IRA and relating it back to this uh, the, the inflation reduction, act and relating it back to this comment about energy efficiency, it seems to me that the, the path forward politically to action is telling some sort of opportunity story. That's true in the sure. north. That's true in the south. It's certainly true uh, in India. And this is the story that the U.S. tells um, or has told to get the IRA through. It's curious in the sense that we that the demand management side isn't seen as enough of an opportunity story. It really is, actually. But it's perhaps it's not a big money opportunity story, uh, which is why politically it's 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 less saleable. But I want to come back to your, your point about, you know, uh, local content requirements and uh, onshoring, and thinking about shortening of supply chains and all of these sorts of global economic rebalancing that we might have to see accompanying uh, a green industrial policy. And a question, therefore, and, and I want to use this to pivot to the question of finance at this COP, which is going to be a central issue. The question is, to what extent is this story about remaking your economy to be green. To what extent is that a story that every country can buy into or even every major economy can buy into? Because ultimately, as you say, countries are telling themselves a story and acting strategically with the idea of being more competitive, creating more jobs. And yes, it may be a growing pie, but will the pie grow enough for everybody? And, and so, so are we being honest with ourselves about this green industrial policy as the path forward to progressive politics in India, China, the EU, uh, South Africa, et cetera, all simultaneously? And then tied to that, if it is a zero sum game at some level, why do we expect that there will be more money on the table to help countries ultimately compete with the US or with Europe, are we going to run into that sort of dynamic?
1: Um, well, I think that we've um, done a, re- a reasonably bad job at um, being clear and honest a- about the fact that that what's really ailing um, democracies, capitalist democracies, the West um, is is this growing inequality. Mm. And what has been ailing us is the profligacy of a fossil fuel economic model that has brought us to the point where we are dangerously uh, manipulating the climate, right? So the two things have to be resolved as one. And where you start to see that working is where those coalitions are beginning to find each other in the civic space or in pol- or in politics or or in economic thinking and it, it it's it 's interesting you know obviously i'm, I'm, I'm uh, from my accent i 'm british it was interesting to me that even in the u k where it 's kind of asked and answered uh, that the the net zero the the green transition all of this is enshrined right we we have statutory obligations we have statutory bodies that advise without politics without partisanship. Uh, even then, you know, we we could over the summer have, you know, wildly different ideas about you know how you achieve that from candidates from the same party, uh, and we could even sort of dally with a, a for just for a few weeks with the idea that we had to uh, be committed to growth, not green, and not able to put the two things in the same sentence. Right? Well, what does green growth look like? And actually, green growth means more jobs in the north of the country, which is where economic achievement is falling behind, the leveling up, all of this kind of thing. So uh, I don't think we're quite there. You know, Nick Stern has since 2006 been pointing out that the cost of inaction is higher than the cost of action. Uh, But our economic tools are pretty blunt when it comes to actually, well, in that case, how do we actually measure progress and measure wealth and measure um, uh, achievement? So I think we find ourselves now at a point where we have these dangerous levels of inequality within countries. And then we have this um, extraordinary uh, debt burden uh, mounting up for many uh, countries in the global south. And we have this divergence possibly, you know, within the the global economy. And there's been concerns for some time that Africa sort of starts to get delinked. Of course, Africa is um, our renewable energy superpower. It is. Uh, it has ten thousand times the amount of energy that it needs uh, from re- from its renewable endowment. It's it's a puny fossil fuel player. It's five percent of global uh, resources. Um, so it's it's both a thought experiment and a global economic management uh, issue. In order to help Africa exploit its renewable energy resources right. and not be the continent that sort of gets set adrift. So. I think we have to deal with equality and green growth at the same time. And when you do, you start to get things like the IRA um, being you know, applauded and welcomed in communities.
0: Right. I think that's a that's a that's a really powerful uh image of uh Africa as a renewable energy superpower, in a sense, just waiting to be uh to 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 you know to be enabled uh and, and unlocked in a sense to access all that all that energy, um, but but I think what we are hearing is that in the short run,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, the question is, and we, we see this uh, in terms of pushback from African leaders saying, look, you know, we really find it deeply problematic that countries such as Norway, which have got rich on the back of fossil fuels, are voting at the World Bank against providing support to Africa to draw on our fossil fuel resources, as a short run measure even though it's not going to be a big piece of the of the overall uh, of the overall problem. So I think I think the, the 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 thing about the renewable energy story and I see this in India also is the promise of it definitely seems massive and everybody buys into that but the pathway to get there is potentially laden with high capital requirements. And high transaction costs, including in India, where, for example, you know, coal cross subsidizes passenger uh, uh, rail travel, which is a really politically important thing. So, if you get rid of coal, you get rid of a really important linkage between coal between the energy sector and the railway sector. There are many such linkages, I think, in, in political linkages in the in the developing world. So, it, it seems that the, the 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 bring this down to now the question of finance and the COP the down payment of credibility, the ask of the West really seems to be, okay, we we agree with this promise, but it's also going to take some transition. It's also going to take upfront capital in our capital scarce, high capital cost societies. Where is that money going to come from? Do you see any way in which this COP is going to take a progressive step forward in addressing that finance credibility question against this backdrop of, you know, the 100 billion, which everybody agrees is just kind of a, uh, you know, it's just a token in a sense. It's just a, 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 you know, a somewhat random benchmark that that we came up with in Paris, that Hillary Clinton, I believe, came up with Paris. Um, uh, What is the way forward for this COP to make that conversation a little bit more fluid? A little bit less stuck in this in this rut that we've been in for a few years.
1: Okay, so I'm going to get there, but I'm going to just take you back a little bit uh, okay. on uh, on 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 the pathway. So first of all, uh, the, the 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 creed occur from African leaders is not all the same. So energy exporters have been very clear that the injustice that they the righteous indignation, the, the righteous injustice that they feel being uh, with, with capital too, cost too high, uh, entry into global trading systems, question mark, you know, where's the vaccine rollout? Not there. Where's being the help? Where's the 100 billion, etc. Oh, and now we have a war in Europe. And now we have to pay the cost of that in terms of energy inflation. So energy exporters answer to that question is, you should let us exploit our gas because, oh, by the way, you'd like to buy it. Uh, Well, that gas is always going to be for export. The quickest and cheapest way for Nigeria to close its energy access gap is not only to invest in the infrastructure that would allow them to stop venting and flaring their, uh, uh, their gas, which has been on the agenda for multiple decades, and, and there's not been a subject of, of, of much success so far, but it's actually the quickest way to get energy to those in the north and the interior of Nigeria who don't have it is renewables, both grid connected and off grid. And actually the results based in financing that's been in place has done really, really well with expen- exponential growth rates. You know, now that's up in that's up in the air at the moment because of local currency issues. But th- that's been the quickest way to get Nigeria. So You know, I understand why you need to go into the international arena and say it's not fair, you're not investing in me. But it's also perfectly legitimate for private investors and public investors to say, well, actually, we don't want to invest in white elephants or in stranded assets, which is what potentially some of this uh, fossil fuel investments will be over time. I mean, of course, the other thing is that this is for export. And so therefore, you have to, you know, one would hope that countries that want that will then spend the revenues in energy infrastructure that reaches the people who've never had it, because that hasn't happened up to now either. So I think there's lots of Africans sort of saying, well, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute, you know, since when did um, the, the, the gas infrastructure or the oil infrastructure of Africa do very well for many Africans? Uh, yeah. And those voices of Vanessa Kanete and others. But I think also then listen to the inauguration speech of the president of Kenya where he talks about the fact, and of course, Kenya is blessed with renewable energy resources from geothermal to wind to solar, etc. But he is very clear that what we need is more investment in our renewable energy infrastructure, the grid capability, uh, at both nationally and regionally. So I think there's not one African view. Um, so what's going to happen on finance? In in in, I don't think we're going to have that big conversation. But that big conversation started in Washington.
0: If if I could just cut in and say, w- w- accepting the fact that there are multiple views, would you agree that the credibility of provision of finance is an important question, whether it's a yeah. fossil fuel provider or whether it's a whether it's a Kenyan uh, uh, a government seeking to. Uh, rapidly scale up renewables.
1: Yeah. So the right, it, as I said, righteous indignation. Yes. The, the provision of finance and support for transition, uh, both technical advice and finance, just isn't right. there and hasn't been there. But I mean, the core, But the, you know, where I would be, where I would be frustrated is that that hasn't come uh, in terms of the support that Africa needs to build the infrastructure and the institutions as well as the investment in its renewable energy capability, which is by far and above the most competitive uh, form of, of growth. And, and now the good news is, you know, now everybody's excited about green hydrogen. And of right. course we're now seeing lots of people looking at, at how to help African countries, but yes. So the credit, so we do arrive at COP27 with the developed world having little credibility. It's had little credibility for a number of years, The war has made that, I think, uh, even more so uh, pointed. But where I did see the the beginning of of an important starting of a shift, which will be important, is is at the the annual meetings of the fund and the bank. There was a non-paper written by a number of European countries and and developed countries around uh, what kinds of changes they would like to see at the bank and the fund. And this uh, comes up alongside... The very uh, clear articulation of an agenda by Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, in what's called the Bridgetown Initiative, and you started to see conversations. And I heard U.S. Treasury officials talking about, you know, not having to treat everybody in the constraints of a low-income, middle-income, or high-income bucket. That in fact, you may be middle-income, you may experience extreme vulnerability because of climate change. You should be given or you should be allowed to access instruments under different rules and with different flexibilities than otherwise. And then, you know, a real conversation around uh, the amount of losses when you tally them up that many low-income countries are expected to um, experience as a result of climate change. And then again, what does that do to their vulnerability? What does that do to their ability to access funds under what kinds of uh, conditions. So that conversation has started. Now it's taken us far, far too long to get to the point where shareholders and owners of these institutions are actually writing and talking about this. But it's there, and that's what's going to have to happen. Because you know, to borrow in order to respond to an impact, when it would be much more sensible to invest in your resilience to that impact before it happens, and it would be even more sensible to stop emitting. Yeah. finally, we're beginning to have that conversation. So, so I, you know, we, we started out by talking about
0: how there are many other fora where these conversations necessarily have to occur. And so certainly the bank fund annual meetings and the bank, uh, and perhaps to some extent the fund under its new uh, manager, uh, new director, um, uh, are institutions uh, that are key to this, this whole issue. What do you think, uh, maybe you can give us a bit more of a flavor of the sorts of things that the World Bank in particular could usefully do. And we hear lots of calls for sort of MDB reform where the bank is not sort of set up in a sense to address a problem like uh, like climate change. And in my conversations with staff within the World Bank, I've sort of sense a real tension where some of the sort of uh, uh, staff who've been there for a long time feel like they shouldn't, in fact, be pulled entirely into climate change conversations. There are many sort of development, quad development conversations that remain salient uh, that they should be be focused on. What is it, do you think, do you see any kind of contours emerging around this question of uh, multilateral development bank uh, reform? Uh, And maybe related to that, this question of, the source of finance. So we saw at Glasgow that the GFANS, you know, really Mark Carney's mm-hmm. initiative trying to mobilize private investment. But you had a nice description of the IRA, which was really about public investment, crowding in private investment. And so maybe there's a role for, for both those things. And, and can the World Bank play a role in, 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 making, in getting, uh, in somehow um, providing more of that sort of flexible funding that allows governments to crowd in private investment?
1: So two, two great questions. So I'll, I'll try and give concise answers. <laughs> yeah,
0: we're so, ranging quite far, I agree.
1: No, it's OK. So in the, the, so when it comes to the bank, I think that, you know, we, we earlier we were talking about climate is everything, everything is climate, except when it comes to development finance. So mm-hmm. in the world of development finance, multilateral or bilateral, we, we still have everything stove piped. And so the, the question is not that everything that the bank should do should be about renewable energy. Of course, the bank should be doing, you know, work in, in, in budget support for health systems and education systems and public sector management and all the things that the bank does, but it's in the context of a climate crisis. And so, hello, you know, so it, it's quite extraordinary that you know, the, the, the bank still uses the metrics of uh, co, co-benefits. Right, so here's a development project with a climate co-benefit. Well, here's a climate p- project with a development co It's like, no guys, you know, everything, your health system is gonna be strained beyond belief because of the human impacts of climate change or your health system is gonna get washed out to sea if you haven't made sure that it's resilient to sea level change. So I think that's what people are asking for. And, and that's what I understand in the development committee of the bank at its last annual meeting. You know, They're gonna come back with some new kind of strategy Strategy. And it's it's not that everybody has to be a climate specialist in the bank now. It's just that we have to, in our dialogue with countries, uh, really put this at the heart of the discussion because it is macro in terms of mm. risk now. And I think that's for a lot of countries. So that's a short answer. There's much more to say. But then secondly, I think on um, on finance. Uh, so GFAN's. So the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero, 450 financial institutions, $130 trillion of assets under management, many, many, many institutions sort of shoehorned into the alliance in the last three weeks before Glasgow. They go home from Glasgow, they open their eyes and they're like, what did we just get ourselves into? And so this last year has been a delicate process of people going back at the level of the boardroom or the C-suite and figuring out okay, we committed to this, can we do this? Uh, how do we do this? Who measures it? How do I know that I'm doing it right? How do, my, how do I know I'm not gonna get attacked by my grandchildren on Friday when they strike, right? So all of this has been going on. And some really, really hard work. Um, a couple of people have decided to leave because it's too difficult and too unclear. And then in the recent weeks, we've we've had a, a real pushback from some of the major US banks JP Morgan Chase city and others basically saying is too, you know we're in, we're in a we're in a crisis we've got a war going on you know we've got inflation we can't do this so they too have not got the memo about you know um, the centrality or the context of, of climate is everything and so what we've seen is the leadership of these alliances saying oh no it's it's so important that we have JP Morgan and the city and the US banks in we should lower our standards mm. and then you've had other people saying no well this is actually a scientifically Benchmark standards. So we're not lowering it. And that tension you will see in the margins of COP27 and you'll see afterwards. So, this is in some ways not difficult to understand. We're in a transition. So, it doesn't mean that every day we take one step forward. Some days it'll be two steps forward, one step back, but that tension is there. But what you'll also see in Sharm el Sheikh is attempts to continue to try to tap into that 130 trillion, which is not 130 trillion, but it's still a big amount of money to get that to invest in things that it won't invest in on its own and places it won't invest in on its own. You're also going to see, I think, some real pushing from the United States that can't go to Congress and get Congress to appropriate climate finance. So its public pledges cannot be met. So it desperately needs to show that it is leveraging private finance. And I think it will try to do that in a number of other ways, the, the financial support to methane, for example, but also they're looking hard at how to use voluntary carbon markets more, more in a more targeted way uh, to try to support countries that are in transition. So I think that's um, there's some furious uh, diplomacy going on at the moment around those kinds of questions.
0: A, a lot of that, a lot of that brings true. And I want to come back to this, the, the 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 leveraging private finance story. But just before I do that, just a reflection on your observation about the World Bank and its framing around co-benefits. So it's continued use of the of the co-benefits framing. And I, I have to say that it's a framing I found very useful over the years as a way of moving the conversation along in India. Mm-hmm. Uh, And it's something that the Indian government sort of enshrined back in in 2008 in its National Action Plan. But I agree with you. And this is an interesting kind of development of the recent IPCC, where um, the formulation that they came up with was that we now should be thinking about shifting development pathways uh, to take into account both low carbon development and climate resilience. So as you say, to to take into account the fact that this is the overriding context within which all decisions uh, really need to be made it needs to internalize uh,
1: these these decisions no i um, agree with you yeah conceptualizing co benefits back in the day right i mean was fundamental that that helped yeah. turn a lot of people on and it learned it helped us turn all kinds of ways of working on what i'm just saying is that in 2022 I agree. maybe yeah. the development industry should be finding different ways to conceptualize it yeah
0: that's right and, and, and in a weird kind of way it's sort of it's co-benefits on wheels to put it very somewhat <laughs> it's, uh, you know it, it's not just a static concept anymore it's about all the choices that you're making um, but i want to come back to the the finance uh, leveraging private finance and I, I i think i think this rings very true to me that you know there's this desperate as you say effort to kind of harness private finance to plug all these holes. And we'll come to that in the context of maybe loss and damage and the links to insurance as well. But but one of the places this is, this is really uh, biting at the moment is in the conversations about the South African uh, 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 JETP, the Just uh, Energy Transition Plan. And just recently, there've been sort of, you know, some information out there about, look, what share of this is going to be grant money the the amount of money that South Africa was was promised versus versus uh, versus uh, loans, and I think a lot of people are watching this very carefully. And again, it seems to me that yes, eventually to go from billions to trillions, you need to have private money go to where the opportunity is. But it might take a fair bit of concessional money to help make the case and lay the groundwork. Um, and and. It seems to me that that conversation hasn't advanced very much beyond the sort of promises that emerged out of successive uh, COPs. Um, so I'm coming back to this question about sort of, you know, grant money, concessional finance, public funds and so on. Um, and, and then maybe we can use that to then bridge into a conversation about, about about loss and damage.
1: Well, no, I think your observation is absolutely correct. We at times are trying to get private money to do things that private money's never done probably never going to do right and so the question then is how do you how do you mobilize domestic public finance how does the international community help countries mobilize their own domestic resources right and then how do you if if you don't have public money if if the, if the developed world can't bring the 8.5 billion to the table in a grant form which was probably never going to happen because you're always going to use multilateral systems and that's always there for even a, a highly concessional loan, right? Um, then, then how do you leverage the private finance so that it comes in in such a way that it doesn't, um, that it isn't prohibitive from the perspective of the, of the country? So so that none of this is new, right? So this is, we, we've been blending finance, we've been crowding in private finance for 70 years in different formats. Uh, uh, we have mobilized private money to come in on the back of public money when the Iron Curtain fell down. The mm-hmm. reconstruction of Japan in the 50s was all done with uh, the look at what happened to Korea after the Asian crisis. So we kind of know how to do this. Um, the unpalatable truth, I think, is, is that there does have to be some kind of public uh, investment coming from developed countries which will bring us into loss and damages it's it's the same discussion so what do you do if you can't go to congress and you can't appropriate for you know the billions of dollars of climate finance that you're backed up with Uh, so that's where we see attempts to create you know aggregators try to find ways to invest in you know new merchant banks and new guarantee companies and other things that, again, we know how to do, but we haven't done to scale. How do you then take the money that you've put in the multilaterals, whether it's the African Development Bank, in the case of South Africa, or the the World Bank, and how do you make that money work much harder? And I think here, this is where you get agreements from all sides uh, around sort of Mia Motley talking about the trillion dollars that is in the system that should be, released because that's the cheapest trillion dollars it's much easier than it is appropriating another trillion mm-hmm. and so i think that and then from the country's perspective yes you know it's it's you, you can go to a cop and you can say I, you know i don't want loans i want grants but when it comes to the to the actual transition plan that you have what's the most important thing is that the is that the, the type of financing matches the type of project or the type of uh, of, of process. And here I think um, this is where the conversation about changing the concessionality around funding for the climate crisis becomes really important. And that's going to have to be much, uh, on much on the highest concessional terms. I think that, that it's not a grant, probably not, but that that you change the concessionality. Mm. So South Africa has been a, it's been a brutal year. I think a lot of people went to Glasgow and they said, "Oh, oh, eight point five billion dollars for South Africa job done. No, that was the beginning. So I think it is it, each country. So if the finance matching the financing to each tr- country's transition plan is, is going to be complicated. A lot of people went to Glasgow thinking, OK, eight point five billion dollars South Africa. Great. Make the announcement you know, and go home now because that was just the beginning of the story. I think what is important this year, while it's been really difficult, is obviously the South African domestic political context is complicated, and then we've seen, but we have seen a, a set of private sector financial actors sitting at the table with, you know, international and domestic, you know, political and and financial actors, and you know that hasn't happened before. Now we do the same thing for Indonesia, for Vietnam. These are all complicated transition stories um so the quality of financing which financing does which thing best how do you blend them how do you stitch them together that this is uh going to be uh the most important thing that we do um because we have to accept that for the time being um sort of eight dollars appropriated climate finance that that's that's going to be at the levels it's at now, or even reduced.
0: And what? And 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 China? A word on China on this? I mean, you know, we, a few years ago it was <laughs> it was it was all about Belt and Road and the Chinese, uh, you know, initiatives to build their own development banks and so on. There's a lot less of that now. Um, do you see China coming back into that space?
1: Well, I thought I thought that the recent uh, Party Congress and the, the speeches from Xi Jinping were quite. Well, quite astounding in, in in many ways, right? But on the subject of climate, that obviously Bri didn't come, work out exactly the way that, that perhaps he'd wanted or expected. But so now, what do they do? Uh, and and I think we're all eyes on how they engage. It's how they come alongside the West, right? So how do they come alongside when it comes to restructuring debt? How do they? Which will be significantly and the most important thing for most of the climate journeys that the that indebted countries have to go through how do they come alongside in the use of concessional finance either through the BRI or its successor alongside what the west is doing but I think importantly in this conversation is taking place you know inside each of the multilateral development banks is can we have zones of cooperation on Mm. climate inside MDBs or inside the international system while the rising tensions between the us and the west and china continue unabated so it's going to be critically important i think there are other things as well that china's south south fund i mean doesn't get a lot of you know attention from strikers on a friday right so but china has i don't think come through with exactly everything that it implied if not promised and then the other thing is that we have famines We have food security crises. We have humanitarian crises all around the world. And the Chinese uh, contribution to that uh, in the international system is minuscule. Uh, Somebody was telling me the other day that China's contribution to the world food program is now less than Burkina Faso, less than Honduras, less than Democratic Republic of Congo. Now, obviously, the the Chinese can uh, can, uh, can offer aid bilaterally. But when we've got multiple crises in a polycrisis, then working together becomes important too.
0: No, no, absolutely. And I, and I think, I think um, in a sense, after this party congress, we're going to, we're going to sort of see the direction of travel. Uh, I, think, I think the leadership has been occupied with this very sort of focal moment. And, and if there's any sort of new directions, I think we'll, we'll, we'll start to see it. Maybe we can end Rachel with coming back to this loss and damage question. I mean, many people have said, look, you know, this is an, a COP where some of the sort of key moments like the global stock tickets, so one will happen at, su- at successive COPs, the global, global adaptation is due to sort of be brought up in a sense uh, at the next COP. Progress, of course, be made at this COP. And the Egyptian uh, minister, of course said that he would like to focus this on implementation, as you said. But a lot of the speculation has centered on, is this the moment where loss and damage will really take some kind of concrete shape or form? And it seems to be that a lot of the developing countries, the vulnerable countries are making this the benchmark of success uh, uh, for for this COP. And this being the agreement to some sort of facility, uh, uh, even if the contours of it or not, uh, don't come completely into focus over these over these two weeks. Do you think that loss and damage will be that sort of issue? And do you see a landing zone uh, uh, for it and all the sort of comments that we, the prefatory comments that we've seen from the US and others kind of trying to temper expectations appropriately?
1: No, so I think it is it is the sort of, it is the battle line, it is the Waterloo, it is the whatever the analogy we want to use. Um, and I think for as long as it is a log ahead conversation. So this is not a comment on the rights or wrongs of it. I mean Mm-hmm. My, my firm view is that we should have been contributing into loss and damage funds for a very long time in m- multiple creative ways. But mm-hmm. so without a comment on the right or wrong of it, you know, a log ahead conversation where you, on the one side, you've got sort of AOSIS and others saying, you know, we want these words used to describe this kind of thing and we want it now. And then the US, the Europeans and Swiss sort of saying, well, we can't do that. Uh, we don't want to use those words and we can't actually do any of this. You know, in the middle is Simon Steele, which, which makes it very difficult for him as the UNFCCC Sec- Secretary Secretary, because he comes from one of those constituencies. And so it's always really difficult when your own family is like arguing with you about what you need to do. So some empathy there, I think. What I do see is that if you can just, um, so first of all, Glasgow last year agreed a two-year Glasgow dialogue. So I think, what I would hope is that we see some movements, but I don't think we're going to get a big deal until, until next year. But what I do see is that in the conversations around uh, recognising that countries are seeing substantial parts of their GDP disappearing after extreme weather events on a regular basis now, and that across the world this is happening, it's not just one region or another, and when we talk about how to ensure for that, how to offset that, how to invest in the resilience towards that, how to uh, manage the borrowing costs, you're starting to see people describe what actually would be the elements of loss and damage. Mm. And so I think, you know, the U.S. in some of its expose on what Janet Yellen is sort of interested in pushing in the multilateral development sphere, you know, some of that repackaged, and use different words around it, would, would, I think, be very welcome in a loss and damage conversation. So I think we've got one more year before that starts to really mature. I think that's frustrating. It's wrong. It's unfair. It's unjust uh, for those people experiencing the damages. But um, I think at one point in the Bridgetown initiative, it was suggested that every country that, you know, is GDP is affected by 5% or more should be given a sort of different sort of status as a borrower or as a as a client of the multilateral system. But, but I was thinking about this when I was looking through the data in the U.S., 5% of GDP, well, that's Colorado, that's California. I mean, you know, it's, this, and, and goodness knows, we, we're still tallying the cost of the storm, um, Hurricane Ian in Florida, which, of course, it's it will go down in history probably as the storm that forced the insurance markets to be regulated in a different way, because I think... Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we're just beginning to realise uh, the precarious nature of the way in which we manage the insurance markets in this country.
0: Do, do you have a Do you have a sense of, if you like, you said it, it. It'll take probably take more than this two weeks. It'll probably take more than this year. What What are the contours of the sorts of statements that might collectively come out in decision text, or the sorts of agreements that vulnerable countries might. Say all right, that gives us reasonable hope that, at long last, we will actually have uh, the promise of something credible in terms of, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, uh, and I use this word because lack of a better one, compensation or uh, solidarity, uh, a genuine expression of solidarity, uh, given the given the impacts that we have faced. I can just sort of push you a little harder on on what is that.
1: I mean, I don't know, but I would have thought elements may include um are there any more Denmarks out there? Are there any mm-hmm. more countries that show willing so the the, the numbers would be perhaps in si- uh, not significant enough but they they would be down payments as it were right. uh, so right. how many more of those are there, uh, so, just, are there sorry, any just,
0: other- just to sorry. interject for the for the listeners Denmark you have a contribution. Of I think it's 13 million euros uh, a few weeks ago towards loss and damage. So so more such uh, indications from countries I think is is the is the is the best. Yeah.
1: So a year ago in in um, in Glasgow, the Scottish government, in in order to pull the beard of Boris Johnson's government, put a million uh, pounds down, sort of into into a facility. This was then matched by three philanthropic. uh, uh, entities uh, with another million each, I think. And then, uh, and now Denmark becomes the first sovereign nation at the UN, uh, sovereign member state to to to, to pay into a, a fund. So I think there'll be a question of are there any other countries or entities that would put money into a loss and damage facility? Then there is the question of um, the... Uh, sort of the mechanics or formulae for how money would go into a loss and damage facility. And I think there's room, as I said, there's room for words to be um, drafted that would indicate that there is some movement on that now, Um, uh, referencing discussions that are taking place in other places, you know, et cetera. No, 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 that's going to be sufficient. Uh, for uh, small island states in particular but i think that there is there's some language that can be crafted there i think that there is also then you know exploration of other other creative ways of raising money for the loss and damage facility not to negate the responsibility of for loss and damage of developed countries but, but so if you can accept that that responsibility is still there or we can find the language that doesn't send the U.S. uh, out of the room, uh, then uh, are there other creative ways uh, to to raise that money? And there's been all kinds of sort of discussions about everything from wealth taxes to to windfall taxes to, I mean, other ways. And there's been, over the summer, over the last six months, there's been two or three sort of voluntary initiatives or small huddles trying to look at ways in which you could you know, capture some of the windfall profits and see if they could be distributed. So I think there's there's that there's a third piece there as well. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. and then finally, I think um, there is a there's a conversation to be had around insurance, um, uh, which is not really fully a loss and damage discussion. Uh, but I think there's movement in the insurance discussion as well. The thing that will sort of explode the whole discussion is if we uh, get into a standoff. Uh, over compensation and reparations. And, you know, I just feel that you, you know, the US does not believe that it has the legal basis to agree that and until there are changes in the lawyers and the members of the delegation, that's never going to change. Um, and I so I think that if the negotiators can focus on these sort of component elements, we right. might get progress. But if we get into a big sort of, you know, yeah terminology uh, yeah yeah, then it's going to be really bad and Egyptians will want very much to avoid that
0: right right but perhaps just I think that those are those are all sort of great you know marking out of areas of possible agreement I might just add I wonder whether you'd agree another tricky one which is the question of the modalities of accessing those funds which is which is which is also quite quite a tricky
1: issue no, I think it's, it's very, very tricky. And we, we, we've we got, I mean, the other interesting thing is that the GCF was about to go into its replenishment. Um, so this is the green climate fund, which is an instrument of the convention. Um, and so, you know, we, we've, there's a whole question about how good we are at setting up new financial institutions and new mechanisms and how good we are at running them quickly. Well, um, but uh, I think the modalities conversation is a very important one, and then all of the, the the stuff within the Santiago um, framework. So this is the technical assistance. The countries countries need an enormous amount of help, um, uh, uh, and I think that there's more that could be done there to be supportive of that work.
0: No, absolutely, and and I and I and I think that this is. This, as you as you say, is definitely one to watch. It is perhaps the Waterloo of this of this this particular uh, this particular cop. But uh, but I'm I'm glad that in the course of this conversation, Rachel, we were able to sort of draw the links from this uh, you know this health check event, as you say, all the way out to these other fora and other spaces where conversation is happening, where decisions are being made that are relevant. Uh, to sort to addressing this issue, everything from the Chinese Party Congress to the bank fund uh, annual annual meetings, um, and I do think that that uh, while the COP plays this role in bringing us together in a focused way to talk about this, the more we spend other moments uh, uh, at other times of the year talking about it, I think I think it would be uh, it would be all all to the good. Um, I want to thank you very much for taking time early in the morning uh, for you. Uh, I know that you will be in Sharm sheik and uh, I hope I have a chance to interact with you, uh, with you over there. Look forward to reading your continued writing and hearing you on, on a range of, of platforms. Um, and I'm just very grateful you were able to take the time.
1: No, Navarro, thank you so much for the invitation. And I of course read everything you put out as well. So thank you for your leadership and for your, Intellectual rigor and uh, and curiosity. That's, we need all of that. Thank you.
0: That's very kind of you, Rachel. Thank you. So let me let me close formally. Uh, thank you for listening to us. Uh, for for more information, please follow us on at CPR underscore India and at CPR underscore Climate. This is the third of a series of pre COP podcasts. Uh, first with Harold Winkler, second with Salimullah Huck and today with Professor Rachel Kite. Thank you once again, Rachel.
1: Take care. Thank you.